welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry and social justice. Hello, this is James and welcome to the Madden America podcast. And this week in a new initiative for us, we present the first in a new series of interviews by Dr. Shana Olfman, who will be looking at the science and pseudoscience of mental health. Hi, I'm Dr. Sharna Olfman, and I'm so pleased to welcome you to the Science and Pseudoscience of Mental Health podcast. My guests are scientists, clinicians, activists, all of whom are making really impactful contributions to both our understanding and our support of mental health. At the same time, they're helping to to, uh, debunk the pseudoscience that has kept the mental health system locked into really narrow, pharmaceutically driven treatment protocols. My inaugural guest is Dr. Zach Bush. He is one of the few triple board certified MDs in the country. He has expertise in endocrinology and metabolism, in internal medicine, and also in hospice and palliative care. Dr. Bush had a very prestigious academic uh, career based in cancer research and a successful conventional medical practice. Uh, But about 10 years ago, he arrived at what was for him a really challenging uh, conclusion. And that was that his pharmaceutically based treatment protocols were not only not helping his patients get well, but he felt that they were actively harming them. So he walked away from his research, from his practice. He moved to rural Virginia um, in the middle of a food desert and opened up a clinic with a focus on the medicinal properties of plants. Uh, Today, he runs a really interesting, innovative, integrative uh, medical clinic in Charlottesville but he also heads an outstanding team of researchers who are at the forefront of epigenetics and microbiome research. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to be with me today, Dr. Bush. I was, I was really keen for you to be the inaugural guest on the um, Science and Pseudoscience of Mental Health series format in America because I really um, think of you as a really um, visionary, big picture thinker. And I love the way you, um, you know, uh, bring so much to the macro picture of the connection between planetary health and human health and the micro picture of epigenetics and the microbiome. Um, And you prove out your theory in the lab, in the laboratory with an amazing team of scientists, but also in the clinic with your patients. And in the process, uh, you're developing a really innovative and impactful approach to healthcare and challenging big pharma and uh, conventional medicine. So um, I think to start, it would be really helpful if you could just give us a brief, I know this is near impossible to do a brief overview, but if you could, uh, you know, the concepts of the microbiome, like the concept of epigenetics, 
the reason that the gut is so central, of such central importance to our health and its connection in turn to the immune system and the barrier systems, including the blood-brain barrier. So if you could kind of just do like a brief, a brief primer, that would be amazing. Okay. Um, so we'll start with the microbiome, I think was the request there. And so yes. the microbiome is an ecosystem that lives in and around the human being. Um, it is composed not just of bacteria, but also of fungi, parasites, viruses, and the like. And this, this ecosystem is massive in comparison to the biology that we hold as humans. So it's recognized that just the bacteria alone outnumber us 10 to 1 on the human body, in and around, and also in our tissues. It's now understood that bacteria dwell in the breast or in the prostate or in our solid organs, as well as within the human gut lining and with, on our skin and every pore, our nasal sinuses and the mouth. You know, all of these structures are covered in, in teeming ecosystems of bacteria and fungi. And the interesting thing about the microbiome is it has the capacity to balance. If it has enough information and it has enough, uh, you know, connection to its own nature, the microbiome has the capacity to balance these, these tens of thousands of species of bacteria with millions of species of fungi with hundreds of thousands of species of parasites. You know, so we have this massive, massive ecosystem that's all working in a very coherent and coordinated fashion. You throw into that then an antibiotic and you can see the, the incredible disruption that we cause uh, in the, the fabric of the biology in which we live. You've perhaps grown a garden or you know somebody who's grown a garden and you, you have a sense that if they don't take care of their soil, if they don't have enough moisture and water content in the soil, they don't have enough compost and all that and the nutrient in the soil, their plants are going to die. We live just as the plant does on our organic soil. Our soil happens to be that of our gut and of the uh, nutrient delivery of our microbiome. And so as we kill the ecosystem in our soil, our plants are damaged. The soil is damaged. As we take antibiotics in our food, in our water systems, in our uh, prescriptions from our physicians, we are decimating the very fabric of the way in which our life springs out of the soil. And life is continuously needing that nurture, right? You can't just take care of the plant until it's a foot high and then stop taking care of it. You need that soil to be made you know, healthy and, and, and maintained throughout the life cycle of the plant. If you start aging, you know that your soil is starting to, to have a decrement. The aging process should not look like a decline by age two, which is currently what we see. Mitochondria start to die off by age two wow. as, as humans now. And so we, we're seeing this decrement of, of life and the, and the life-giving soil very, very early in life. Twenty and By age 28, we all have measurable dementia. And so we have this really fast decline happening as the microbiome is challenged. Then wow. You talked about there was you know the relationship of that microbiome to the the gut lining and and the you know intelligence of this barrier system not just of the gut lining but the blood brain barrier the vascular uh, barrier systems the kidney tubules and the like and our group has been really working you know with some of the most profound science in this area because of the opportunity that we had to start to extract uh, these molecules that are made by the bacteria and fungi and the microbiome biome, extract those from fossil soils and put those into the human intestinal environment under the microscope. And then ultimately, just more recently, the, the human blood-brain barrier. And we've come to find out that the bacteria and the fungi, not in their organisms themselves, but instead in the metabolites, these carbon molecules that function as a, as a communication network, dictate and control the ability of the human cell 
to respond to energy in, injury, to prevent injury, and all of this. And so that's the relationship then to that barrier system. And as that starts to suffer due to the loss of the microbiome, we start to lose our self-identity at the, at the core level. We start to lose the identity of outside and inside. Uh, outside that barrier is the outside world. Inside is my immune system and, and human biology. As that system erodes and we start to lose those boundaries, then we can develop chronic inflammation where we're attacking everything. We develop autoimmune conditions where we're stimulated to attack anything that looks foreign. And if we have enough disruption of our understanding of self versus non-self, we start to react to, to our own organ systems and we kill our thyroid gland or our pancreas or whatever organ is under attack or we erode our joints with rheumatoid arthritis. All of these processes are these chronic inflammatory states that have developed due to this you know, widespread damage to the tight junction system uh, and the leak that's now kind of come out of that situation. How does that impact then the bigger organism? You asked me to speak towards you know, the impact on emotion and those things. It, as you start to lose self-identity, your ability to understand the, the source of fear, guilt, you know, emotional trauma in your life is undermined. And you become you know, much more, um, I think, egocentric in the sense that you start to lose the context of who you are by this kind of erosion of that self-identity at the cellular level. And you start to, to be prone to collapse. You're prone to you know, kind of collapsing into that fear and paranoia of I'm attacked. I, nobody nurtures me. Nobody loving me. Nobody understands me. Uh, you know, that kind of fear paradigm that we're all prone to. And we can all go, even in our healthiest states, we can find ourselves at any point in the week kind of slipping into that more negative thought process, that sense of why the hell am I here? I, you know, last week I felt like I knew my purpose and this week, you know, all of that seemed to dissolve. And now I don't know why the, why I'm working so hard, what the hell is going on? Like we can so quickly, you know, lose that grounding and it's going to come back again and again to what is the relationship between the microbiome, the protein synthesis of our extracellular matrix and the tight junctions and the barrier systems to the, the neurotransmitters themselves. And we now know that the bacteria in the gut, a very specific uh, segment of species of those microbiome have to be present and touching the endocrine cells in our gut lining that make serotonin and dopamine. If that bacteria is killed by an antibiotic or our food chain, we now can't make serotonin. If we now ingest glyphosate, Roundup, alcohol, any number of things that kill the tight junctions, we now develop a leak and inflammation. Not only do, are we not making serotonin and dopamine, we have inflammation in our brains and in our, in our immune systems, and we quickly erode biologic well, wellness, and, and we slip into that depression, anxiety, sense of self-worthlessness, all of these things that start to emotionally emerge uh, from the matrix of this chaotic system that's losing its barriers. So thank you so much for that, you know, kind of that, that overview, that big picture. So I'm guessing that the vast majority of people who are listening today have heard about Monsanto's product Roundup, which you referenced, um, and it's, it's um, active ingredient uh, glyphosate. But sometimes you kind of, you know it, but you don't really know it. And I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit more about why you focus so heavily on this product specifically. And um, I've also heard you kind of tie it pretty directly to the autism epidemic that we're uh, seeing in children today. So if you could um, just speak a little bit more about the specific harms of Roundup 
and its connection to um, the various mental health crises that we're we're experiencing today. That would be awesome. Sure. So the active ingredient, as mentioned, is glyphosate. This is a molecule that is uh, made from the backbone of an amino acid, which is a naturally occurring building block for the proteins that we build our human body from. And that glycine backbone is then uh, tagged with a phosphate group and then a carboxyl group to create an amine on the other end. We end up with this, this molecular family called an organophosphate. And that organophosphate is a chemical that was initially patented by a gentleman in, in Japan uh, as a chelating agent, and that was 1959. Um, did not get put into the marketplace because it's a pretty toxic chemical, and so uh, didn't get put into the marketplace. And then in the, the mid-1970s, uh, Monsanto was actually developing chemicals for uh, cleaning out uh, industrial piping systems, sewer systems, and the like. And so they purchased the patent uh, on, on this glyphosate molecule, and we're using it as a pipe cleaner. And it acts wow. to tear uh, minerals and stuff away from the lining of the pipe to open up uh, clogged pipes that have been mineralized. And so uh, the issue that they found, though, is that as soon as that pipe emptied on the other side of the water system, uh, it killed all of the plant life and organisms in the in the streams and everything. And so they re- suddenly realized they had something that was, you know, damaging the, the green stuff. And that's now, you know, recognized to be, you know, the same process that they would have recognized in the other organophosphate uh, that was present in the 1970s in big amounts, which was Agent Orange. Agent Orange was the chemical we were transporting over to Vietnam uh, to defoliate the jungles. And so we we're spraying from planes vast amounts of organophosphates to kill the jungle foliage so that we could see the Viet Cong and, and kill them more effectively. And so it was a, you know, this warfare tool initially to defoliate that then became in a, a more mild chemical, if you will, in the form of uh, glyphosate or Roundup uh, that they figured, well, if, it, if we can't market it as a pipe cleaner, then maybe we can go ahead and market it as a weed killer. And so they uh, got permission to do that in the late 70s and, and by uh, the mid-80s, of course, it became a consumer product called Roundup. And Roundup, unfortunately, is far more toxic than just the glyphosate itself. It's got a bunch of surfactants and other chemicals in there. There's 16 other compounds that are toxic in, in the, the final product Roundup. And so you, you develop this, this chemical that we, we spray weeds and that kills them within a, a few hours. And so we have this toxin and it starts to be distributed to, to the homeowners who don't like weeding and they're taught to spray dandelions, which are kind of cancer, cancer magic, anti-cancer superfoods. And so we're killing our dandelions with this Roundup chemical and it starts to unfortunately uh, get into the ecosystem. And the way in which that happens is that this molecule, uh, which is unique to, to, you know, this family of toxins is, is very water soluble. Most toxins that are derived in nature are fat soluble rather than water soluble. When you live on a planet that's 70% water and mammals and all of the other bio, you know, eukaryotic biology on Earth being 70% water, it seems like a really bad idea to add a chemical that's water-soluble that can then cross all those boundaries and get into every living organism uh, to do its damage. But that's exactly what we did. So we took a water-soluble toxin and we started spraying it into our yards, onto our driveways, kill the dandelions and the weeds and the cracks and everything else. And of course, that washed down into our sewers which of course is the water system for the next town down the road. And so we started drinking uh, glyphosate and Roundup in the, in the 80s. And then by 1992, uh, they, they developed techniques to start to sell this to farmers in mass for crop, crop treatments. 
And so in 1992, they developed the ability to uh, sell this as a desiccant rather than a weed killer. Uh, desiccant means a drying agent. And so they had farmers in northern climates spraying their, their wheat with Roundup to kill it prematurely and so that it would dry quickly so they could harvest it before the crop was damaged by uh, storms that may be coming in or you know fall coming on. And of course, that allowed farmers in, in lower latitudes to actually start killing the wheat prematurely so they could actually grow two seasons of wheat rather than one and things like this. And so it accelerated the the, the, the killing of the, the wheat. Of course, if you look back in time, you realize it was the same year that we started to develop a marked increase in the reactivity of the human gut to gluten mm-hmm. in that wheat product. And as we've turned out to try to, you know, really delineate the real details of now in our labs in the last couple of years, we've been able to show that there's this huge synergy between gluten and glyphosate, and you don't get gluten sensitivity unless the gut lining has really been exposed in large amount to this glyphosate. And so we triggered a sensitivity to gluten and, uh, and other food compounds by adding glyphosate chemicals to that food before it delivered to uh, the flour that would become our bread. When people have experienced this, severe gluten-sensitive patients will go over to Europe and eat a croissant and be blown away that they have no brain fog, no gut stuff, and they tolerate it completely fine. And, and somehow their gluten sensitivity went away. Well, they don't really have gluten sensitivity. They have glyphosate sensitivity, which is what all of us have. And so glyphosate uh, is this you know, kind of predisposing molecule. Then you fast forward to 1996, four years later. Uh, with the debut of the Monsanto Roundup-ready seeds for corn and soybean that were genetically modified to be able to be sprayed directly with Roundup. And so now we have wheat, corn, and soybean, and then ultimately the sugar beet as the four main staples in, in our country as staple crops being sprayed with a single chemical that disrupts the microbiome first. It actually functions as an antibiotic. And so that has been patented as you know, antibiotic and kills fungi as well. It does all kinds of things to the microbiome, can kill parasites, can kill uh, you know, worms, all kinds of things. Uh, a single spraying of Roundup in a field, uh, we've been told now by the farmers we're working with, can kill 50% of the worms in a single application. And earthworms are obviously one of the most important parts of that soil ecosystem. And so it's extremely toxic life uh, or chemical to all of life at every level. The plant, the microorganisms, the macroorganisms, all of them dying very quickly under a single application of this. And now imagine the entire farm system spraying this. And of course, it's not going to stay on the farm because it's water soluble. So as soon as we have rain or irrigation happen, it ends up not in the soil, it ends up in the water system. The water system that collects the vast majority of the Roundup sprayed in the United States from an agriculture standpoint, of course, is the Mississippi River. The Mississippi River collects all of the water from you know, Montana, North Dakota, South Dakota, Minnesota, Missouri, you know, all these states within, you know, the Northern and Midwest, um, we end up, you know, in one water system accumulating all of the Roundup, all of the fossil, uh, herb, you know, uh, fertilizers and the rest into one water system. It's not surprising that's now the, the most horrible, you know, zone for life to exist in. As the Mississippi empties out into the Gulf of Mexico, uh, we kill all microorganisms and, and fish life and everything else. And there's a dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico at the mouth of the Mississippi that's now the size of Rhode Island and growing every day because we're dumping more and more of these chemicals out into that water system, killing the algae, the, killing the, the microorganisms in the coral, bleaching out the coral. 
you know, same thing is happening into the Great Barrier Reef. Australia went crazy with with glyphosate in around 2007, and I've been uh, more steeped in it than even the United States over the last decade, and they're killing the coral reefs there. And so we've got this massive decimation of life on Earth from our chemical farming, and it and it's absolutely should be illegal. And I think that you know the rise of consciousness is happening enough that I fully anticipate that it will be illegal in the next decade. The question is, how high of a toll are we going to have to pay in the form of our children's health before we are willing to make these jumps as consumers and as you know people who vote their their you know representatives into office? We have to make this the central part of human uh, policy because it's about human life and our survival. One in three males is now infertile in the United States. One in four women is infertile in the United States. It's direct correlation with our uh, chemical farming. So we have got to stop this if we're going to survive as a species. Again, thank you so much um, for that. If if you could tie our uh, use of glyphosate and our also abuse of antibiotics in general. I know glyphosate was patented as an antibiotic, so it's it's also an antibiotic. But if you could tie it to the um, just really shocking statistics that we're seeing around um, autism in children today, I'd really appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, even before we get to the science, the public health statistics are so strikingly correlated with the debut of this chemical as it's impossible to, to ignore. Uh, in 1975, uh, the rate of autism was one in 5,000 children in the United States. Uh, in 1976, we started to see a slow increase. By the 1980s, we were starting to see a rapid increase. By 1990s, we were seeing almost a, you know, a near vertical increase. Uh, and then by 2012 to 2015, in that short three-year period, we doubled our rates of autism in a single three-year period from one in 88 children to one in, 40, one in 44 and just to, you know, now with 2016 numbers, 2017 uh, hasn't even been counted yet, but 2016 already at one in 36. So, you know, we are marching so fast towards uh, this reality that one in three children will have autism in the United States by 2035 at our current trajectory. One in three children. That statistic, you know, is is you know devastating from a humanity standpoint, from a health statistic. But if nothing else moves you, then the money should. Because if, if, if we cannot, and nor can any economy on the planet, handle that burden of disease in our children. And at the same time, we've had this epidemic of cancer in our adults with now 50% of American males diagnosed with cancer before they die. I think the number is 49% at last publication. That was two years ago. So I think we've well surpassed that now. Um, but 50% of males now, you fast forward to 2035, and it's likely we're going to have 70% of the adult population with cancer. And one in three children with autism, we can't. That's that's unfeasible as a nation. We will be bankrupt and we will not be productive. Um, and so we, we will not be a productive group. We will be a sick and diseased community um, that's you know pouring money into some other buddy, somebody else's pocket to keep our, our medical system alive. China might be the one pouring all the money in to keep our chemotherapy flowing. And so, you know, it's just uh, incredible decimation that is correlating with this advent of 1976 uh really being the, the bigger debut of Monsanto's Roundup. And then you know, every year that we sprayed more crops, we see the trajectory of autism go up. So, so just to um, play devil's advocate, um, just to really actually um, to amplify what, what you're saying, um, you know, some critics of, uh, of, of the statistics that you just presented on autism might say, 
well, you know, we're just getting better at diagnosing it, or we've so generalized the term, these are just quirky kids who shouldn't be labeled with, you know, and I think that mostly comes from people who haven't worked directly with autistic kids who can sort of dismiss it in that way. So if you could just speak to that briefly, that that kind of... You know, critique, which yeah, I'm sure we've heard. That, that argument has existed across all of the epidemics of disease that we have currently. Look at the trajectory of cancer. We keep being told that cancer is a genetic disease. Well, it can't be a genetic disease because we see this, you know, linear increase happening, mm-hmm. doubling of cancer over a 25 year period in the United States. That can't happen if it's a genetic disease. This has to be an environmental disease process uh, for us to change the demographics of cancer. It turns out that the highest death of cancer was in the Northwest and the Northeast for all of the history of us keeping track of the demographics of cancer death in the United States. And then suddenly in a 12-year in a period, we completely reversed that map and the highest cancer rates are now at the, at the mouth of the Mississippi River. And so that we completely reversed the whole epidemiology of cancer in just 15 years. That should be impossible if our science was right about the mechanisms and, and pathophysiology of cancer. Ultimately, it's the chemical environment that's correlating with our, our patterns of disease, the rates of disease. Now, cancer, you can argue, well, we're just getting better at diagnosing it compared to 1975 because now we have CAT scans and MRIs and all these fancy equipment to look pure inside the human body and find cancer earlier. I would totally agree with that. I would say there has been a, a, a uh, bias toward, uh, of you know cancer rate uh, uh, kind of diagnostic uh, capacity that overemphasized the shift between 1975 and 1995. In those 20 years, we developed all that technology that would help us diagnose it sooner. Between 1995 and 2015, no change in our diagnostic criteria and and technology in cancer. We're still using the digital MRI. We're still using the the, uh, mammograms. We're still using the the CT and MRIs for the rest. We have PET scans. All of these things have been very static over the last 20 years. And yet during that time, we've seen the steepest climb of cancer rates. And, and of course, we're now seeing cancer in incredible amounts in lymphoma, leukemias, and brain tumors in children. That never got missed. You don't miss leukemia and, and lymphoma in children. They die of that. And so, you know, we, we have so much obvious stuff that we can't just chalk up to, oh, we're just diagnosing, diagnosing it better. When it comes to autism, I think you're spot on. Anybody who makes the argument that we are diagnosing autism you know more accurately or we change the we loosen the diagnosis or the the criteria they haven't met an autistic person we didn't miss this in 1975 we didn't miss that the kid went from verbal to suddenly nonverbal can't make eye contact and is so inconsolable that it strikes its head against the wall for four or five hours a day to the point where it's got a big old knot on his forehead from four years of hitting his head against the wall we didn't miss that kind of stuff in 1975. You don't need a CT, CT or MRI to tell you you've got an autistic child. You need to be a parent. You know, you see your child miss all of its milestones suddenly, and it can't crawl right, it can't walk, and you know, years behind its peers. That we didn't miss that as parents, let alone doctors in the 1970s and 80s. We have an epidemic at hand, and anybody who would argue against that is 100% part of the problem. Mm-hmm. the biggest part of the problem you can be is keep denying that there's a problem. And so I would challenge any physician and scientist to wake up and go meet your, your nephew and, and niece that has autism, because I guarantee you, you are one degree of separation from autism right now. 
you right. cannot find a family that's not being affected by autism now. Right. And if you don't call it autism, then it's attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, it's sleep disorder, it's precocious puberty, it's you know anxiety, major depression in children, it's leukemia, lymphoma, brain tumors in children. And so we have so accelerated this disease process, 46% of children in the United States now have a chronic disease diagnosis. And there's a lot of those that haven't even been diagnosed yet that are just sitting there suffering without the diagnosis. And so we have sick children. You ask any school nurse, how many EpiPens did you have on, on the shelf in 1985? Maybe one. Now you go in, they have to have all the, they've developed these fancy boards that all the EpiPens click into with the kid's name and a specific allergy because there's so many kids that are allergic to their environment now because they have no barrier. They've destroyed the barrier system and everything they eat goes zipping right into their immune system and cause a reaction. And so it's, you know, there's just such an enormous collective ignorance happening in the medical field right now that I think is finally starting to collapse. You know, when I started lecturing on this stuff, 2010, 2012, it fell on deaf ears. By 2015, I was starting to get so damn busy traveling to speak to everybody because everybody wanted to know. Everybody knew there was a problem. Now I could be speaking, you know, 360 days a year all over the world if I wanted to. Right. Everybody is starting to wake up, including the science community, that we have a serious freaking problem on our hands. And if we don't turn this around, even our politicians are realizing we have an insoluble financial situation. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Another issue that I wanted to discuss with you is that in psychiatry, and I know this is also true in medicine in general, that the treatment of choice in psychiatry and in the sort of mental health system is um, a, a, a psychiatric medication. It's not the treatment of last resort, it's the treatment of choice. And um, uh, it's usually prescribed as part of a kind of a polypharmacy regimen. So it's a kind of a drug cocktail of uh, some, you know, mixture of antidepressants, stimulants, anti-anxiety medication, antipsychotics, anticonvulsants that get rebranded as mood stabilizers. And with each um, iteration of the DSM, Psychiatry's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, we have more and more of these kind of narrow silos of diagnosis. And I've heard you speak about both of these kind of related issues, the, the overuse of pharmaceuticals. I've heard you talk about your concern for the heavy use of stimulants with millions of kids today and the ways in which these really narrow diagnostic um, labels sometimes remove us from the root cause of the individual suffering or illness rather than elucidating. So if you could kind of speak to these kind of connected trends of more and more diagnostic, narrow diagnostic categories leading to more and more pharmaceuticals, especially like around the um, psychiatric uh, drugs like stimulants. Yeah, so uh, part of my background that I don't get to talk about very often was before I went into uh, my endocrinology and cancer research, I was uh, really interested in neuroplasticity. And so uh, by the time I was wrapping up medical school, I decided I wanted to focus on the area of uh, a field called psychoneuroendocrinology. And it was the collision of uh, how hormones control the neurologic system that would uh, kind of be the underpinnings of either psychological health or disease. And so I, I, my first grant proposals and research proposals uh, I wrote with uh, Philip Gold at the NIH around this, this topic of uh, psychoneuroendocrinology. 
And at this time in the late 1990s, we were starting into a very exciting period in the decade of the 2000, you know, 2000, 2010. That decade become, became known as the decade of the brain. We learned more about the human brain in that decade than ever known and probably ever will be discovered again. Um, so really exciting decade. And at the beginning of that process, we were starting to realize that the human brain was so plastic, changing all the time, neurons reconnecting and, and uh, lysing their connections all the time. Very, very plastic. And we found out that neurons could be born. We, we thought up until that time that you're born with your brain. And from that moment on, you have a decrease in number of neurons and you got what you got. Now we know that there's stem cells that can rebirth neurons all the time and that your whole brain might even turn over every seven or eight years. And so there's this huge plasticity that uh, has this potential for healing in the brain. So uh, that was kind of my, my interest in underpinnings uh, back in the late 90s. And now you fast forward to the last five years of my life to find out that you can't have a neurologic or endocrine event without the bacteria in the microbiome. And this is why uh, the polypharmacy that you talk of is such a chasing after the wind is it's not getting anywhere near the root cause of the situation as to our current understanding of what the situation is. And so uh, back in the 1990s, with the big debut of Prozac and, and the big SSRI serotonin reuptake inhibitor class of antidepressants, that was amazing time where we thought we had found a magic bullet for depression. And um, because it increases the amount of serotonin available in the synapse. And I said that carefully. It's not the amount of serotonin we increase. It doesn't make you make more serotonin. It simply blocks the uptake of the serotonin. So more serotonin gets left in the synapse to keep interacting with the receptors on the surface of your neurons. And so there's more available serotonin, even though there's no more serotonin than there was when the drug uh, was given. That is kind of like, you know, basically disrupting the normal life cycle of oxygen and saying, hey, you've got more oxygen in your bloodstream right now. Never mind, there's no oxygen inside your cells or in your brain, but hey, there's more oxygen in your blood, so that's a good thing. That's very much the same kind of scenario where you, we've kind of convinced ourselves with serotonin and dopamine, the two major neurotransmitters of the brain. We keep using these drugs to modulate the availability of serotonin and dopamine in one tiny little compartment, ignoring the total body exhaustion that's happening. The reason why the major depression set in or the anxiety disorder is because there was a, a drop in the amount of serotonin and dopamine available to that brain. The reason there was a drop is because we consumed antibiotics from our physician or from uh, the environment around us. The, the, the numbers are now astounding. One course of antibiotics will increase your risk of anxiety by about 17% and an anxiety attack or, or generalized anxiety disorder in the next 12 months by 17% increase the risk of major depression by 24%. Two courses of antibiotics in the course of, a, of six months will increase your risk up to near 45% for either of those conditions. And so we have never told that to our patients as physicians. We prescribe 833 prescriptions for every 1,000 man, woman, and child, children in the United States, and we've done so for almost 20 years. 833 prescriptions for every 1,000 man, woman, and child in the United States. So we have... An, and yet not single one of those consumers is being told we are screwing up the entire foundation of your neurologic system because we're going to drop the amount of serotonin and dopamine made in your gut that will then go to be available for your brain. We don't know that. We don't talk about that. And even when we do know it, we feel trapped. Oh, they have a urinary tract infection. What? We can't figure out another approach that antibiotics to treat urinary tract infections. That's been known forever that silver, colloidal silvers and D-mannose and these simple available nutrients to our body completely eliminate uh, 
the risk of urinary tract infection when used appropriately. And so that that reality of we are just so short-sighted as scientists and physicians that, hey, we were handed a pharmaceutical toolbox and we thought that, that was the entire story. Like, you don't think nature thought about that? You don't think people, you know, avoided urinary tract infections, you know, before the advent of, of antibiotics? And you know, so it's, it's just a really ridiculous scenario that we've so dumbed ourselves down, so codependent with the pharmaceutical industry and our education to believe that it's the only solution and it's the highest tech or highest science out there is around these pharmaceutical agents, which are all chemicals, pharmaceutical, uh, you know, derived, which means changed or, or perturbed from their natural state, which means they're going to have side effects and have negative impact on the human body when taken. And so we're just missing the whole root cause of health. And we're certainly missing the pursuit of health and healing uh, through the belief that the pharmaceutical industry should be any part of that, let alone, alone the, you know, the foundation of it. So very quickly, the pharmaceutical becomes very much not the solution, but part of the kind of the chemical toxicity problem, especially in a, a growing child with growing body and brain, we would be particularly concerned. Precisely. Yeah. And, and it's no wonder to an autistic parent listening that I say the microbiome is the most you know fa- fundamental piece of an autistic injury. You already know your child has a messed up gut. It, it, it's the, one of the most fundamentally obvious things when a child develops an autistic injury, they suddenly can't tolerate any other foods. All they want is refined carbohydrates. They'll eat you know the, the goldfish and, and macaroni and cheese all day long and they won't touch anything else. Uh, and so their preference for food gets dumbed down to the drug effect of the food. Uh, and so they're trying to now stimulate their neurotransmitters through the drug response to the fat, salt, sugar combinations rather than the nutrient response and the microbiome production of those neurochemicals. And so the kid switches into drug relationship to their food chain very early on in that injury process. And that's the hardest thing to break an autistic kid out of is their drug relationship to their food. And so any parent who's struggled to, to help their child with autism knows the gut, the gut, the gut is so messed up in my child. Why can't I get it right? Why can't I find the right diet? Why can't I get them to do it? And of course, the GAPS diet and some of these early efforts from that were really created by parents of autistic kids and the, and the clinicians caring for them uh, realized that nutrition was going to be an important part of the, the reversal process. And yet that doesn't get told by neurologists or, uh, or family doctors diagnosing autism. That doesn't get presented as this is front line. You got to change the microbiome. You got to change the nutrients going into the child. Right. Not taught. And so again and again, we've just found that, you know, the education that we receive as physicians is so far down the pharmaceutical belief system that we have no understanding or underpinnings. And we're certainly extremely insecure about our lack of knowledge about things like nutrition, exercise, and healthy lifestyles. Right. Absolutely. And so just kind of tying um, the um, abuse of pharmaceuticals um, to uh, something else that you were referencing earlier a huge belief in psychiatry, and again, I know this is true in all of medicine, is that these alleged discrete psychiatric disorders are driven by uh, a vulnerable um, genome and that we want to move towards this kind of individualized medicine where each and every one of us will be genetically profiled and then we'll find the perfect drug combination or we will somehow slice and dice the genome that we were born with and find optimal health. And um, if you could just kind of speak to that 
belief system. Sure. That was definitely the promise I was told when I started medical school in the 1990s. I was told, you know, I'd be the first generation of, of doctors that um, would be able to have this power at our fingertips to, to sequence the genome of every patient walking in the door and tell them exactly what diseases they were going to get and exactly what drugs we were going to use to treat them uh, to the best optimal state. That was a promise right up until about 1996 when we when we finished decoding the human genome for the first time and ended up with an estimate of about 25,000 genes. That didn't make any sense to our current understanding of genomics because we knew that we had over 250,000 proteins in the human body that were made from genes. So how could just a mere 25,000 genes make 250,000 proteins really disrupted our, our, our understanding of genomics at the time? We thought that one gene would make one messenger RNA, which would then leave the nucleus and go into the cytoplasm of the cell, orient uh, little amino acids along that RNA that would then turn into a solid protein that would then fold into a complex tertiary uh, protein structure that would then go to be an enzyme or a structural protein or whatever it needed to do. That got blown apart by this reality that we only have you know, this handful of genes. We had already decoded the, the, the genome of the flea, for example. The flea has 30,000 genes. So we were only, we were less complicated than a flea at the genetic level. It didn't make any sense. And so when the, the initial team got done sequencing, everybody else said, oh, you screwed up. You, you missed most of the genes there. And so then a second team finished, a third team finished. Now we've had six teams around the globe. Uh, and the number hasn't increased. In fact, it's decreased to find out that we really only have 20,000 genes. So we're two-thirds as complicated as, a, as, as that flea. A fruit fly has 13,000 genes. So we fall somewhere between a fruit fly and a flea in regard to our genetic complexity. That's very humbling. Really, really humbling and difficult to understand. Mm-hmm. And it's been all of the other stuff. There's, it's, so it turns out that only those 20,000 genes represent such a small amount of our DNA um, that uh, it's now thought that only one and a half percent of our, our DNA actually codes for a gene. The other 98.5 percent has been considered junk DNA, literally junk. They, and we, you can still read articles writ, written this year referring to all of that DNA that doesn't make for a gene as junk DNA that's left over from our evolutionary process or some other justification for this, all this junk that's survived. But the reality is we already know that we're passing that junk on very carefully to our children. So if it was just junk, why would we preserve it so carefully at the biologic level? Well, in the last few years, we've gotten the answer in that all of that junk DNA is not junk at all. It's actually the template not for proteins. It's the template for microRNA. MicroRNA are much different than messenger RNA. Messenger RNA are the ones that will go become a template for the, for the DNA gene uh, that will then leave and make a protein. MicroRNA are tiny, tiny little segments of nucleotides that are being coded from the previously discussed junk DNA, and those leave the nucleus and leave the cell. And they go on to to communicate with distant cell populations and, amazingly, we now know distant species. And so our microRNA is the way in which we genomically communicate with the microbiome. In the same way, it's the way in which the microbiome communicates to our genome. And so some 35 to 40% of the microRNA that's in our bloodstream right now has already been identified to be bacterial or fungal in nature. Wow. When we finally finish you know, figuring out the microbiome and, and the scale of its genomics and all of its microRNA, we're going to find out that 99.9% of the microRNA in our bloodstream is actually not from the human. It's actually from the, the microbiome itself. So what does the microRNA do? 
if we have all of this genomic information from the microbiome, what is it doing to our genes? It turns out that that microRNA then goes down into the nucleus of our cells and can modify the behavior of the gene. And it would have to, to allow for one gene to make over 200 different protein options, which we now is the case, now know is the case. And so if one gene can become 200 different things, we need to know what to make at any given moment. So the way that the genome within each of your human cells, 70 trillion cells trying to decide at any given minute, what do I need to make right now? The information that's coming in is coming in the form primarily from the microRNA, as well as other epigenetic factors, chemical exposures, all this can also change the methylation patterns of the epigenetics of our genome. And so now we know that the microbiome, the world around us is affecting through their genomics, changing who we become today. We have plasticity, not just at the, at the brain, as I discussed earlier, we have plasticity in our whole body. With 70 trillion cells, we can decide in any given moment to build 4 million different bodies. We're so plastic, we can literally build 4 million different variations of ourselves based on the environment that we put around us today. And you've seen people do this. You go to a high school reunion or something like that, and there's going to be a few people in there that are like, whoa, what happened to you? You were like the fat kid, and now you're like ripped, and you look like the best athlete in the whole class, and your facial structure looks different, and you exude this confidence level that you never had in high school. What happened to you? Well, what happened is that person simply built a different body for themselves, built a different brain by changing their environment dramatically. The cool kids that, that were at the height of the, the pecking order at the end of high school, they tend to be the ones that declined over time the fastest because they didn't change their environment because they had no need to change because they were at the top of the pecking order. And so they've been declining and haven't reinvented their body because they haven't changed their environment. And so this is the revenge of the nerds, I think. <laughs> this is We're at the bottom of the class and we were always the last to be picked on teams and everything else. I was definitely in that kind of nerdy category growing up and, and struggled to find my social niche in school and finally found my group of nerds that I got to hang out with through. And we were so nerdy that we, once we found each other, we couldn't leave each other. So we had to stay best friends for 20 years because there was nobody else nerdy enough to hang out. And so that, that group, you look at me, you look at pictures of me even from five years ago, I'm a different human being than I was then because I keep changing my environment and I keep more dramatically affecting who I become tomorrow. And I get more and more empowered through that, that capacity. And we need to pass that, that hope on to our children because our children are sick right now, but they don't need to be sick. If they are empowered to change their environment and given the tools to do so, they will change their environment because nobody wants to be sick. Most of all, a vibrant child who has the potential to become you know, a real participant in society at large. Instead, as you mentioned earlier, and you asked me to speak on it, I got distracted and didn't mention it. What are we doing with the pharmacy on our children? Instead of empowering them to build a new brain and a new body through changing into a healthy environment around them, we instead pharmaceuticalize them. 70% of the children that are diagnosed with ADHD by the age of 12 are medicated with a stimulant. They're medicated with Ritalin, Adderall, these versions of speed. These are, these are literally adrenaline-forcing hormones uh, that, that will turn on the fight-or-flight state in the child. The advantage of the fight-or-flight state is you, you become focused, and that's exactly why we're giving it to the kid is because they can't focus in school. They can't take a multiple-choice test. They can't do this or that. Oh, well, just give them speed. It'll put them in a fight-or-flight state. They're going to have to focus for a few minutes so that they can answer the, the ridiculous four 
options they have on that, that multiple choice test. And so both by our testing and education method and by the drugs, we are stealing away and crushing the creativity of that organism because a child or any being that's under a fight or flight state will naturally turn off its creative centers of the brain for self-protection. If you suddenly have a threat to your life and you're in a fight or flight reaction, it's a terrible moment to sit down and decide you're going to compose a poem or draw a painting. We, we naturally and appropriately turn off our creative centers when we're in a fight or flight state. Now we have a whole social structure and pharmaceutical structure that forces our children at a very young age into these fight or flight states pharmaceutically where they can't escape that fight or flight state. They lose their creativity. They can't find their purpose because they can't find a creative outlet that would allow them to express their unique purpose among us. And they get depressed, they get anxious, and they feel overwhelmed, and they can't adjust to society because they are being crushed down in their potential by the very pharmaceutical pharmaceutical environment we put them into. Absolutely. And so while the statistics are really depressing and deeply alarming and um, you know, the pharmaceutical industry right now carries so much power. And as you were saying, you know, medical uh, education is so limited and it's not kind of teaching the kinds of things that you're expressing to us today. Your message is nonetheless an extremely optimistic message because what you're saying is that we're not just products of our genome. In fact, the genome plays a very limited role, the microbiome, in collaboration with, you know, good planetary health is is what enables us to take charge of our health and take, take charge of our lives. And so I'm wondering if you could make some recommendations to um, either parents who are concerned about their children who have received these diagnoses of ADHD or depression or autism, or just individuals who themselves are struggling um, who are depressed, who are anxious, who are sick, um, how would you suggest that they build a better brain and build a better body? What steps can, can we all take to, to do this? Thank you for that question. It's so important. I mean, I want to infuse hope into all of you. Um, if you haven't caught it yet, you can build yourself a new body and brain. That is such an important story for you and your children and grandchildren, nieces, nephews, et cetera, et cetera, that are suffering right now. And so um, it's so exciting. We have so much human potential untapped because we have never really lo- lived life in a sense uh, and a, a wonderment of connection to nature as a society. Individuals, I think, have gotten there. We've, we can point to individuals who found real nurture and, and, and kind of synergy with, with Mother Nature and uh, maybe through a meditation process or some other uh, you know, experience, near-death experiences are very common to do this, where some people have a near-death experience and spend time on the other side of the veil for 20 minutes and then suddenly come back into the body and they completely change uh, their whole perspective on, on their connection with nature. Or ayahuasca is another common one you hear about, people doing our ayahuasca journey and suddenly through the influence of the, of the chem- chemicals and the roots of those plants that are used in the ayahuasca journey disrupts neurochemistry to the point where you suddenly see the singularity. You suddenly realize you're all connected to the trees and the air around you and the, and the, and the moisture in the air and all of this stuff is all you know, singularity. Those experiences can accelerate that. 
but in many ways, small and large, you can start to move yourself to that recognition that you are connected to nature at a fundamental level of the fabric that you are created from. And you have the ability to build a new body. You have the ability to transform yourself. And you do not need a pharmaceutical industry to do that. You do not need a doctor to do that. You do not need anything outside of yourself and the context of the nature that you were born into to achieve a huge paradigm leap in human health, who you are, get connected to, to not only who you are, but what you're here to do. And so that process has, looks a lot like getting nature back in your life. And so first getting the silence in your life, you know, turn off the freaking TVs, turn off your computer, turn off the Wi-Fi, get some silence in the house. If you can't get in the house, then just leave the house, get in your car and drive as far away from civilization as you can and get out of the car. I don't care if it's in the middle of a field or by a waterfall or whatever and stare at a leaf for a while, stare into nature for just a few minutes and find reconnection there. Have you felt that, that incredible sensation of grass on your toes recently? Bare feet in grass, and especially the opportunity to be in a, in a field that's got like wildflowers growing there and everything else. And you can feel like the, the, the crumbliness of the soil beneath your feet, and you can feel the tickle and pressure of the grass and, and, the, and the leaves of the, the flowers pushing up on your ankles and toes and everything else. It's a, it's a, it's a real life, like four dimensional massage happening from mother nature into all of your neurologic systems. The bottom of your foot is the reflexology map. Every single organ in your body can be nourished and nurtured and encouraged and inspired by the touch of just grass on the bottom of the feet. If you're in a park, that grass has been sprayed with glyphosate recently, and you're going to absorb chemicals in your body. So get out into real nature. Get out into the wildflowers. Get out there into the real grasses of the Midwest. Get out there uh, to the sands of our beaches that are certainly contaminated, but still have the power to touch you back to Mother Earth. So that's the starting of the process for you and your children. If you feel sick, if you feel, then stop whatever you're doing. If you need to pull your kids out of, the, out of school for two weeks, if you need to take sick leave, do whatever you need to do to create a few days of nature for your children and for yourself. Get out there, go on a canoe trip, do something to get yourselves and your children back into nature. You'll have scratches, you'll have bug bites, you'll have bumps and bruises. You will be interacting with nature intimately. There will be an exchange of blood and microbes and an exchange of microRNA just by sitting outside and breathing and experiencing nature and letting nature touch you. Don't go out there and spray yourself down with bug spray instantly and cover yourself with sunscreen and all that. At least give yourself a few minutes of real, uninhibited, unfiltered nature. An incredible study is being done in Africa right now with the Hatsa tribe. It's the last of the hunter and gatherers on, on the planet. And they, they've shown that their microbiome is you know, hundreds of times more complex than, than our, you know, our ecosystem or microbiome is in the developed world. And interestingly, their microbiome is bulletproof. Missionaries have this habit of going through Africa and dropping off antibiotics and other medications to say, hey, if you get sick, just take these as, as if they would have any idea of what sick is first and that they would have any idea of why or for how long or whatever they would take these pills. And so the Hatsa people will just eat these things at the campfire that night because it's a shiny bottle from the West and they feel like it's technology. So they'll start popping pills, they'll hand these things around. And the, the, the study group isn't allowed to intervene in, at all. So they just have to, their only allowance uh, scientifically is to measure the ecosystem of the Hatsa tribe, no matter what they do, no matter what they eat, no matter what they do. 
so they were terrified and, and just devastated emotionally to see these antibiotics show up from all these missionaries. And to watch these hostage people who have maybe the last microbiome in existence chowing on these antibiotics, they were devastated. And they, then they were totally dumbstruck when they did the, the follow-up uh, analysis of the microbiome to find out that they, the hostage people hadn't even budged their microbiome by those antibiotics. What? They hadn't even, they, there was zero change in their microbiome by eating antibiotics for the first time. How is that possible? It's possible because they are so tied into their greater macro ecosystem that they're just an extension of the planet. The antibiotic hit them, but it didn't hit the ecosystem around them. A huge amount of the species of the microbiome that have been found to be existing and thriving in the human gut of the Hatsa tribe are actually isolated from nature only on the hides of zebras and porcupine and these other animals that they, they hunt and consume on their hides, not even in their gut or anything else. So that they're touching the animals they kill and eat to the degree that that would so populate their, their ecosystem. And so how do you heal your child in the air of antibiotics when the water's connect, you know, full of antibiotics, everything's full of antibiotics. You get them so tied back into nature that they're simply an extension of the greater ecosystem, and they will become bulletproof like the hots of people. We can become bulletproof if we spend enough time outside. Get naked. Have you, have you skinny dipped recently? Like, isn't that a freaking magical process? Like, get the, the cloth off. You get all the chemical-infused polyesters off your body. Get that bathing suit off of you and let Mother Nature touch your skin. It's, it's nurturing. It's, you know, it's sexy. It's erotic. It's like nature wants to caress your body. Nature wants to be present with you on that level. And we disrupt it. We put a thousand filters between us and the potential microbiome and the ecosystem around us. And the result is a very narrow reality of our, our biologic ecosystem, which makes us very vulnerable to injury from antibiotics, from the chemicals that we would consume and everything else. And so our vulnerability is as much from our convenience lifestyle as it is from the drugs in our environment. Well, thank you so much for the amazing science that you have presented and your recommendations. And again, this uh, wonderful big picture that you afford us about the nature of human health. Um, this has been wonderful. And uh, thank you. Thank you. Well, thanks so much for having me on. Thank you all for listening. I really appreciate this. Uh, you guys are part of an information stream now. And just as the microbiome communicates, I trust that you all will go and communicate this. So thank you for being part of that information highway to get us to a higher consciousness. Okay. Take care. Take care. So I'd like to thank Dr. Olfman and Dr. Bush for that interview. And if you'd like to know more about Dr. Bush's work, you can visit the website zachbushmd.com. That's Z-A-C-H-B-U-S-H dot com. So thanks for listening. And until next time, take care. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views and updates.